All right, well, as Brandon prayed, it's time to step into the Word as part of our worship of our God this morning. So take that Bible that you brought with you today or your phone or however you're packing it, and let's go to Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament, chapter 4 this morning. Ecclesiastes chapter 4. If you need a Bible, Ryan's happy to share a copy of the Word with you and just raise your hand. And there's a note page in your bulletin. Grab that if you wouldn't mind. Uh, We'll work our way through that together along the way. Let me begin by sharing with you a little short piece. um, And just pay close attention to the words as I share it. A myriad of men are born. They labor and struggle and sweat for bread. They squabble and scold and fight. They scramble for mean little advantages over each other. Age creeps up on them, and infirmities follow. Shame and humiliation bring down their pride and their vanities. Those they love are taken from them, and the joy of life is turned to aching grief. The burden of pain, care, misery grows heavier year by year. At length, ambition is dead, longing for relief instead. It comes at last, death, the only unpoisoned gift earth has for them. And they vanish from a world where they were of no consequence, where they achieved nothing, where they were a mistake and a failure and a foolishness, where they left no sign that they had ever existed, a world that will lament them for a day and forget them forever. And you say, wow, what a cheerful introduction, Pastor Tim. Yeah, no, it certainly was not that. But do these words have a familiar ring to them? Do they? They should. They should if you've been able to be a part of our, our ongoing study of the book of Ecclesiastes. They should because they sound very much like the words of Solomon, the sentiments of Solomon as he pens the early chapters of his diary in search of a, a purpose-filled, meaningful, joy-filled, satisfying life. Actually, though, the words that I just read belong to Samuel Clemens. Do you know that name? Who is that? That is Mark Twain. Yeah, one of America's premier uh, writers. And they come from his autobiography. This is, this is Twain talking about his life and his perspective. Words that reflect the, the view of a person who really does not know God has no hope, no prospect or promise to cling to in his life or a prospect for the life to come. From all appearances, Mark Twain lived life strictly under the sun, didn't he? Yeah. But Twain's words could really have been Solomon's words. In fact, they really are Solomon's words first as we have been considering his diary and and his detailed search for meaning and purpose and fulfillment in life. Ecclesiastes, as we've come to know it, is a diary of a man in search of a life that means something significant, but his search is confined to just this under-the-sun realm of the earth, rarely poking his head above the, the clouds to take God into his life. We are in chapter 4 today. And it will be verses 9 to 12 that we will zero in on. These are probably four verses that are more familiar to you 
than most in Solomon's diary because they are ones that, well, pastors will often refer to them as they speak on other topics, especially when they talk about the topic of relationships. They will come to this particular section. These are verses that a Christian friend might pass along to another friend who's in a difficult time, who is lonely or discouraged. They might include this reference in a note that they would send. These are verses that regularly make their way into wedding ceremonies, 9 to 12. And these are verses that appear on beautiful calligraphy plaques in Christian bookstores as well. See if they don't have a familiar ring to you as I read them for us. Verse 9, chapter 4. Solomon says, Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Or maybe your version at the end says a cord of three strands is not quickly broken. Are these words familiar to you? Yeah, you're acquainted with them at least a little bit. Of course you are. Many of you would be. Now, before we take a look at them more closely, remember with me where Solomon is at in his flow of thinking. These verses don't just suddenly appear out of thin air. They're part of a, part of a larger context, and we don't want to forget the context. Verses 9 to 12 actually, I think, represent the crescendo or the climax to a series of observations and thoughts that Solomon has been working through. As he has been scoping out various aspects of his life under the sun, inventorying his world, his culture from under the sun, in the latter half of chapter 3 and on into chapter 4, Solomon slides into a very noticeable place of negativity and and pessimism and and, and kind of has a very cynical frame of mind. We talked about this last time, the danger of of doing that ourselves as Christians, of because we live in a sinful, fallen, dark, uh, unjust, unfair world, it's not uh, not an unfamiliar thing for a Christian to fall into a place of, of skepticism and pessimism and and cynicism. We talked about the contradiction, though, of a Christian being in such a place since we really have experienced the love of God. We have experienced faith in God through Jesus Christ. We have life. We have the joy of our sins forgiven. We have the hope of heaven as a promise. And so it really is a contradiction for a Christian to live in a place of pessimism and skepticism and cynicism. But this is where Solomon is in his under-the-sun view of life without God. So at the close of chapter 3, he laments the corruption of the judicial system of his day. Remember that from last time? He likens mankind in general to being no different than animals. They behave like beasts towards each other, he says at the end of chapter 3. Going to chapter 4, verses 1 through 3, and the rich and powerful take it out on the poor and the helpless. And then in chapter 4, verse 4, he accuses everyone, all people, of being greedy and selfishly driven and out only for themselves. And so you've got this, this negative perspective just kind of pouring out of Solomon and onto the page. And that persists if you look at verses 7 and 8 of chapter 4 
where he says again, I saw vanity. Vanity. You familiar with that word by now? Yeah, it means for him, this word means meaningless, pointless, empty. That's how Solomon uses the word. Again, I saw vanity. Where? Where, church? Under the sun. One person who has no other. They're by themselves, either son or brother. They don't have anybody. Yet there is no end to all his toil, and his eyes are never satisfied with riches, so that he never asks, for whom am I toiling and depriving myself of pleasure? This also is meaningless, vanity, and an unhappy business. Maybe, as I read these words, maybe I imagine in my mind Solomon stepping out of his palace. Remember, he's the king of Israel. He steps out on the palace steps one afternoon, and he, he notice, notices a man passing by that he's acquainted with. He's been writing in his journal some of these dark observations that we just talked about, and this rotten judicial system and the beastliness of mankind and the oppression and the greed. He steps out onto the steps just to clear his mind, and he sees this guy that he knows. He's a single man. He, he lives alone. He's older. He's consumed with his work in verses 7 and 8. He has no family. He's rather self-absorbed, insulated, isolated. He works and he toils for 14 hours a day. He's miserly. He saves everything. He shares nothing. And to what end as Solomon watches him walk by? Solomon looks at him and says, Meaningless. A miserable, pointless, unhappy way to live. He might well have borrowed Mark Twain's words. It comes at last, death, the only unpoisoned gift earth has for him. And he vanishes from a world where he was of no consequence. A world that will lament him for a day and forget him forever. In my mind's eye, Solomon Gaze follows this man until he's out of sight. And then Solomon walks back into his palace, into his writing room, and he sits down and he writes about this guy that he's just seen. Preserves his story in verses 7 and 8 of his diary. He reflects on him, on mankind's ways in general, living insulated, isolated, self-absorbed lives in a wicked, evil, greedy world. And it's at that moment that it dawns on Solomon There has got to be a better way to live than this. To live insulated and isolated and alone. There's got to be a better way. So he picks up his quill. He dips it into the inkwell and he writes verses 9 through 12. Two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. For if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. Again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. The wisest man ever, living in a harsh world and fighting a negative outlook under the sun, pauses to tell us something extremely positive, something very encouraging, something that we all need to hear. 
He tells us in these verses that relationships matter. That relationships are important. Two are better than one. Having other people in our lives is critical to a life that is meaningful and fulfilling and significant. And then what Solomon does after telling us that, he says, let me give you four reasons why living in relationship is important and significant and matters. Church family, it's quite possible that no one needs to hear Solomon's wise words about relationships and the value of two or three or four or more in your life. And maybe nobody needs to hear that more than we Americans. Because most of us have not had much in the way of cross-cultural exposure, I'm guessing, we have no real reference point for assessing ourselves and where we kind of land on the global stage as it relates to relationships. But apparently, when you place Americans on the table with all the other cultures of the world, we have as one of our standout traits, one of our major identifiable distinctives as a people, we like isolation. We like being alone compared to the other cultures of the world. Americans are loners on that world stage. And in his book entitled We the Lonely People, author Ralph Keyes writes these words. Above all else, we Americans value mobility, convenience, and privacy. Ah, privacy. Of these, privacy is our most cherished value. Now, before you say, I am not sure I agree with that, let's think about that. When I first pondered these words, I said, no way. Freedom is what we would value more than anything else as, as a culture, as people. In America, we value our freedom. But then as I thought about that, it occurred to me that even if freedom were our first value, we value freedom because it lets us be private, right? It lets us do our own thing. It lets us be independent and, and define our life the way we want to without interference from anybody else. Now, obviously, there are grand exceptions, and you may be one of those people, but Ralph Keyes may be hitting it closer to the truth than, than many of us wish that he were. That said, and to whatever degree privacy and being loners is a cherished value among us as a culture, Solomon gets our attention with his statement of fact in verse 9. Two are better than one. Would you agree with the statement? Yeah, you would. Observing his own life and world and seeing the pain and, and the hurt and the oppression and the emptiness in the lives of people, he says relationships are critical. They're very important. Two are better than one. Now, you don't have to be the sharpest pencil in the drawer to, to come to this conclusion. When I was in high school, there was a rock band called Three Dog Night. How many of you would remember the rock band Three Dog Night. Show of hands. Oh, man, I'm not the only one. That's uh, it's amazing. A rock band. They're not a Christian rock band, but uh, and by the, today's standards, they were, they're mild, uh, really. They had a song, though, that hit the top of the charts. 
the year was 1969. The song was called, One is the Loneliest Number. Do you remember the song? Instantly, some of you can, you could sing it right now. I know you could. I know you could. It, it found a bit of a rebirth last year in the animated Lego Batman movie. So if you saw that, you've heard this song. Part of the lyrics go like this. One is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. One is the loneliest number, much worse than two. One is the loneliest. One is the loneliest. One is the loneliest number you'll ever do. Remember the words? Yeah. That song rose to the top of the charts, and by doing so, it lets us know that even our secular culture understands the value of two, the value of relationships. What Solomon writes is true. Two are better than one, and he gives us four good reasons why that is the case. First on your note page, together two are more productive than one by themselves. Certainly not a big mystery here. Verse 9, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their toil. They are more productive. Two working together can obviously produce more from their shared labor than either one of them can by working alone. Now there's a name for this dynamic principle of increased effectiveness when two work together as opposed to one. Do you know what the name is for this principle? Synergy. Absolutely. Who said that? That's very good. Synergy. That's the word. Let me give you an example of synergy. Here's a Belgian draft horse. We'll put him up on the screen. Huge horse, farm animal. By itself, this horse could pull 7,000 pounds. And so here's a, here's a pulling competition, and there's a sled behind there, and I just ask you to pay close attention to the size of the sled and what this horse is pulling in this competition. Now, let's put up a second slide. Two enormous draft horses, again in a sled-pulling contest. Notice the sled compared to the first picture. Now, one Belgian draft horse pulling a sled can pull 7,000 pounds. Put two of them together, and we could reasonably think that they could pull how much? 14,000 pounds. We just did the math. But did you know that if you put those two horses together, they can pull 30,000 pounds? Not 14, but 30,000 pounds. That is synergy. That's a great illustration of synergy. And that's what we have when we partner. We will accomplish more together than we ever could alone. Solomon is saying that two are better than one. Uh, I'm going to give you an illustration out of the Bible. In Luke chapter 10, as Jesus' ministry is gaining traction and, and more and more people are following him, there comes this moment when we read this in Luke chapter 10, beginning at verse 1. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them on ahead of him. How? Two by two. 
into every town and place where he himself was about to go. And he said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Go your way. Behold, I'm sending you out as lambs in the midst of wolves. How does he send them out, church? Two by two, not one by one. He could have sent them out one by one and gone in 72 different directions. We'd say, wow, wouldn't that be effective? No, apparently not to Jesus. He'll send out 36 teams because they will be more effective than they would by themselves. That's synergy. Jesus understood synergy. Two are better than one because they have a good return for their toil. But Jesus also knew about the power of two in hard times because what did he say in verse 3? He said, I'm sending you out as what? Lambs in the midst of wolves. He knew they would need each other because it was going to get tough when they got out there. And that's exactly where Solomon goes, if you notice, in verse 10. Two are better than one, he writes, because if they fall, one will lift up his fellow. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. In other words, church family with others in our lives, friends and companions, we know that we will not only have encouragement, but we will have assistance and aid when we come into those places where life gets really hard, in times of trouble, when we experience a failure, when we get tripped up by some snare, either of our own making or someone else's making, or we fall flat on our faces physically or materially or or emotionally or spiritually, Solomon says that a friend will be there to help you get up when you have fallen down. Yeah, you'll be bruised. You might be banged up a bit, but you will not stay down. They will lift you up. In order to do that, your friend has to get down where you are, get into your world. They have to get right down where you are, come down into your hurt, not look at you from a distance and then walk away. They get down and they, they, they get messy with you and then they pull you up. By the same token, that's what a friend does. That's what hopefully you and I do when our friend goes down. Two are better than one because they will lift up their fellow when they fall. Now, guys, if I could just direct a comment to us specifically for just a moment. Ladies, you can listen in, but I'm really talking to the guys here. Most of us men were raised probably by well-meaning parents and teachers and coaches. And then with the help of our culture, we are raised to believe that tough and rugged and hard are the traits most befitting of our masculinity. That's what is encouraged in us. We are to be tough. We are to grit our teeth. We are to not let anybody know how much we hurt. No gain without pain. I need to be the rock. All of these things. That's what real men are, after all, in our culture. Right, guys? That's what we are. You know what? That is an under-the-sun take on manhood. That's an under-the-sun take on manhood. Jesus never portrayed this image himself, and he was the perfect man, wasn't he? I mean, he was not afraid to cry publicly. 
to show compassion and tenderness. He, he certainly wasn't insulated or isolated. He would invite people to pray, to come alongside of him at his most desperate moments and pray with him and be with him. There are more than a few men, I believe, who would love to let down this macho front that the culture and and our own understanding kind of puts on us. They would love to slump down to the ground, tired, and allow another person to minister to them. But our culture does not encourage that. And it's wrong. I ask you to listen to this quote from David Smith in his book, The Friendless American Male. He captures the thought. He says, Within each man there is a dark castle with a fierce dragon to guard the gate. The castle contains a lonely self, a self most men are afraid to show. Instead, they present an armored knight, and no one is invited inside the castle. The dragon at the gate symbolizes the fears and false notions of masculinity, the leftover stuff from our childhood, and we could add our culture. And then he continues, and he says this, Men, what we will discover when we risk and let down the barrier, the drawbridge, and let people in and let them see who we really are, they will not respond with with distance. They will come close. Because they're drawn to what's real. They're drawn to what is authentic. When we show our fears and our vulnerabilities, this doesn't put people off. It pulls them in. And then he adds, this is the stuff from which true friendships are formulated. Being real. Now, ladies, you know how to do this much better than we guys. We could certainly learn from you. And guys, if we don't let down this, bra- this drawbridge, figuratively speaking, we don't, we don't let people in and show them who we really are and how we really feel, then we need to note carefully Solomon's next line. But woe to him who is alone when he falls and has not another to lift him up. That word woe, that's the Hebrew word that is translated elsewhere in our Bibles as horrors or peril or danger. Horrors to the one who falls and is alone, Solomon says. No encouragement, no assistance, no aid, no compassion, alone. One is the loneliest number. Right now, let me just ask you guys, who is there to catch you when you fall? Who is there to get you back on your feet when you go down? And I ask when you go down, when you fall, not if you will fall, because you will. I will. Will I let the drawbridge down so that others can help me? Two are better than one. Solomon says horrors horrors, and perils and woe if we don't do that. Now I can no longer give credit to the source. I've lost that. But I have for more than 20 years had these words in a folder in my office under the things worth saving. Not even sure where I came onto it, but it talks about the power of friendship in this way. Oh, the comfort 
the inexpressible comfort of feeling safe with a friend, having neither to weigh thoughts nor measure words, but pouring them all right out just as they are, chaff and grain together, certain that a faithful hand will take and sift them, keep what is worth keeping, and with the breath of kindness blow the rest away. It's talking about freedom in a friendship, being able to be vulnerable. Let another lift me up when I go down. Do you have that? Do I have that in my life? Two are better than one because they'll be more productive. They'll help help each other in the hard times. Third, if you turn your note page over in verse 11, Solomon says, third, two are better than one because they can face the unexpected head on together. How does, he, how does he express that? Well, he says, again, if two lie down together, they keep warm. But how can one keep warm alone? Now, if we just take these words at face value, they're easy to understand. Who would deny that one of God's truly wonderful gifts, special gifts, is to be able to slide under the comforter on a cold winter night with your husband or your wife in marriage and keep warm? Who would deny that that's not a great thing, right? Two can keep warm where one gets cold. But Solomon's probably got something more in mind than just that thought. He's most likely thinking about the fact that together, two can face the elements over which they have no control better than one can alone. It's a freezing cold night. And it's a freezing cold night whether you want it to be or not, right? You can't control the elements. Now, we've already looked in a previous morning together uh, at Solomon and his words about how little control you and I really have in our lives. Back in chapter 3, remember all those seasons that we considered a couple mornings ago? First part of chapter 3, no control. Those seasons come in. Those seasons go out. They stay as long as they want. We just have to respond to them and weather them. Issues, crises, uncontrollable events, they blow into our lives like a cold, icy wind. And we will face them much better, says Solomon, with someone beside us than we will if we're alone. I think of Chad Barrett and Element City Church, Houston, reaching into the lives of Thomas and Decenia Barsenis, building a relationship with a family that that church and that pastor did not know before the floods of Hurricane Harvey came washing in. That wasn't an icy cold wind for the Barcenas family. That was a warm, rain-laden hurricane wind. And it destroyed everything that they have, their, their home, their car, their jobs. They lost their jobs because of the flood. That family cannot recover on its own. They have no insurance. They need others. When the, the wind blows, they need us, don't they? They need us. And they have us. They're a great illustration of this thought that Solomon has. Two are better than one when the wind blows and it's cold. With a friend, a companion, we'll bear the crushing disappointment that we can't avoid. We'll bear the news of a loss that we could not possibly have anticipated or prevented a physical crisis we will weather together with someone else because 
there with us to weather it. Because two are better than one, because we are together and not alone, we'll have warmth even on the longest winter life night. And Solomon could easily have tacked on to the end of verse 11 the words he tacked on to the end of verse 10. But woe to the one who must endure that night alone. And then the fourth reason Solomon gives for why relations have it over going it alone is because together two can defend against their enemy when they're attacked. Verse 12. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. Perhaps Solomon's reaching back to some of those desperate places that he talked about in his diary. The unjust judge in the courtroom, the the wicked person in that place where justice should be is not there. That's an attack. The oppressor who, despite having all he could want or need, is determined to oppress the disadvantaged even more. Solomon in verse 12 is thinking about what he knows is inevitable. Sooner or later, everyone faces hostile forces. You do and I do. He doesn't define the adversary that could come or in what way the adversary might launch their assault but he assumes that attacks are going to come. Alone, we're in danger of being overtaken or completely taken out. But with others in meaningful, real relationship, joined together by the common bonds of love, shared goals, shared faith in Jesus, we're much, much stronger. We're able to resist, able to protect, able to defend. Now, I've never been in the military but I have had many friends who have been in the military. And, and one of the things that I have learned about that is that if you're an infantryman, you are trained when you are under attack to dig a foxhole. But your training says don't dig a foxhole for one. When you dig your foxhole, dig a foxhole for, what do you think, for two. Why? Why would your training say dig a foxhole for two? Because of what Solomon's talking about right here, yeah? Yeah, expect to have someone in that foxhole with you. Why? Because together two will become a force that neither could have been in the foxhole by themselves. Invite someone into your foxhole. Two are better than one because they'll be more productive because they'll carry each other in the hard times, because they're going to be able to confront the unexpected head on, and they're going to protect and defend each other when the enemy comes. Four intensely practical benefits of cultivating relationships, making relationships matter in our lives. Now, as I thought about this, what the Holy Spirit's telling us through Solomon's pen, I began to just mentally go through an inventory from my Bible where this two is better than one principle would actually reveal itself on the pages of Scripture. And I thought about Noah. Noah is going to face this cataclysmic flood, but he doesn't face it alone, does he? Who does he have? He has his family. He has his sons. And for a 100 years, they build a boat in a time when there was no rain, right? And he weathers that storm, but he doesn't weather it by himself. I thought about Moses and Joshua. He had to lead Israel from bondage to freedom, but did Moses do that by himself? Absolutely not. God gave him Joshua. 
And he went with him all the way into the promised land with Joshua leading the way. Naomi and Ruth come to my mind. Naomi loses her husband, loses her two sons. She's destitute. What does God give her? Ruth. And Naomi survives this devastating crisis in her life. I think about David and Jonathan. Saul wants to kill David. Jonathan's right there protecting David all the way. I thought about Elijah and Elisha. Elijah's going to confront the idolatry of his nation. Is he going to do it by himself? No way. God gives him a companion in Elisha. I think about Paul and Barnabas. Ah, Barnabas. His name means what? Encouragement. Did you know that? Son of encouragement. That's what his name means. Paul was personally commissioned by Jesus to take the, the, the gospel message, who Jesus is, what he has done. He's to take that message to the Gentile world. But that is an exceedingly difficult, challenging, stressful, dangerous task. He'll face many opponents, many adversaries. What does the Holy Spirit give Paul? He gives him Barnabas, son of encouragement. He gives him a friend and a companion whose name means encouragement. He'll be immensely more effective, more productive and fruitful, withstand the rigors of church planting and gospel seed sowing because he has a friend beside him. Two are better than one. Before he closes out his thoughts here in this section of his diary, though, Solomon adds a closing statement that we don't want to miss. Verse 12, one more time. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. What's the next few words? A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Now, I know it hasn't escaped you that up until this moment, everything in this passage has dealt with the number two. Now, suddenly it's a cord, a rope, not of two strands, but three, right? Now, why would Solomon do that? Why would he switch from from two to three? He doesn't tell us, so we could read all kinds of things into this if we wanted to, But probably coming close to the simple truth of the text, Solomon is saying, ideally, you're going to have more than just one friend, more than just one trusted brother or sister. In other words, it'll be yourself plus two others, making three, or maybe even more. He's basically saying, as many friends as you can gather around you, the better you will be. A cord of three strands or more is not quickly broken. In a world like Solomon lived in, which is the same kind of world that you and I live in, two is always going to be better than that lonely number one. Agreed? Agreed? Yeah. Apparently, though, three is better than two. As I reflected on this, it occurred to me that this truth is critical to who we are as Idlewild Bible Church, this cord of three strands. Everything that Solomon has said about two being better than one is true in this place. By ourselves and alone, doing the Christian life, we're nothing. 
But together, we are a cord of 150, 175 strands. That's who we are at Idlewell Bible Church. And joined to all of these other strands, ourselves, joined to all of these others, we instantly become more productive. The principle of synergy begins to reveal itself. It's not just me pulling 7,000 pounds. It's all of us pulling 30,000 pounds together. We are there for each other in the hard times. Brothers and sisters born for adversity. Because we're this multi-stranded cord here at IBC, we face the unexpected, the unforeseen together. We weather the storm. And we keep warm no matter how cold the winds blow. And we watch and we protect each other. We watch each other's backs because we're engaged in spiritual warfare. We defend one another against Satan, the prowling lion who wants to destroy us. When we are these things that Solomon has talked about here, 175 strands bound tightly together in our shared love for Jesus and for one another, this is when we make an eternal difference for God's kingdom. Not when we're by ourselves doing our own thing, but when we're together. Would you agree with that? That's it, isn't it? That's part of what it means to be the church. 175 strands woven together. Ephesians 4, 15 and 16 says it this way. We are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, the church, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, woven together, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. Three are better than one. We, church family, are better than one. And though this could not have been on Solomon's mind, can we just wrap things up for a moment by thinking about the ultimate cord of three strands? The ultimate cord of three strands. What would that cord be? Well, someone might say it's the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. We would agree, right? That's the ultimate cord of three strands. But on a more earthly level in the moment that cord of three strands is made up of you and your relationship with Jesus and the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in your life that is a cord the ultimate cord of three strands in your relationship we recognize we're sinners we can't do anything by ourselves to to remove the guilt of our sin from our lives as we stand before a holy God We grasp that we're powerless to save ourselves. We need another to come in. We admit, we confess, we accept God's solution to our sin problem. And that solution is Jesus. We believe that Jesus, sinless God in human form, died on the cross for our sin. He was buried. He rose from the dead, proving himself to be more powerful in our sin. We believe in Jesus. And we're saved by God's grace alone through faith alone in Jesus alone. And in that relationship with Jesus by saving faith, guess what we're called? We're called his friend. His friend. God's friend. Look at John 15, 13. Greater love has no one than this, Jesus says, 
than that he would lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends. Let me ask you today, are you the friend of God? Are you? Yeah? How are you the friend of God? Through Jesus. By virtue of your relationship with God through faith in Jesus. And then Jesus says, as your friend, I will never leave you alone. I'm not just going to walk beside you. I'm actually going to come and live inside of you by my own spirit. John 14, 7. He dwells with you and will be in you. The ultimate chord of three strands. Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and you. Do you have that today? Do you have that today? Have you given your life to Jesus Christ? If you have not really settled that question, don't leave today without pulling somebody aside that you know or or chase me down. Don't leave today without knowing what it means to be in this relationship with the God of the universe who wants to call you his friend and be there in your life that way. Wow. A cord of three strands, not quickly broken. If it's the ultimate cord of three strands, it's never going to be broken, right? Because Jesus has saved you and you're his forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. Lord Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you for giving us this challenge from your word today. May it not just be words that fall on our ears, but never make it to the most important place that is our heart and our mind. May we take seriously the challenge to open up our lives, to build relationships. You never intended us to do this life as a lone ranger. Even the lone ranger didn't do it alone. We thank you. We thank you for Jesus, Heavenly Father. We thank you for your spirit living in us. Thank you for giving us everything we need to do life in this world. We love you, but only because you loved us first. We're never, ever going to be alone with you in our life. We say thank you in Jesus' name. Amen and amen. Church family, let's stand.